This is episode 33 in the podcast series, The Quest. It is actually the third chapter of The Quest, Meeting Jesus on the Road. Specifically, this episode, along with the, the next episode, episode 34, will explore sometimes puzzling Christian ideas and concepts like the atonement, the ascension, and the second coming. Perhaps uh, the oldest model and the first one that I will explore here of the atonement and how it works is the ransom theory. Ransom theory was developed by Origen in the early third century. The theory teaches that the death of Christ was a ransom sacrifice paid by God to Satan in satisfaction for the bondage and debt um, uh, of the souls of uh, for the souls of humanity. It has had little support in recent times. For one thing, it is difficult to imagine God owing the devil uh, anything. And for another, it ignores the metaphorical or the symbolical aspects of words like redeem and ransom, which occur in the Bible. And in doing so, misses much of the depth and the richness to be found in contemplating the cross and its purpose. The second model is Anselm's satisfaction theory of atonement. It posits that Christ's death on the cross functioned as a gift to God on behalf of humanity to restore the order of justice and honor subverted by sin. Anselm's model has led to a, to a whole group or to a, a whole family of views which have been among the more popular um, uh, views and the more accepted approaches to the doctrine of atonement. The basic idea is this. First of all, the penalty for sin is death. Two, this is the, the great human dilemma since no person can pay the penalty and still live. Three, in Christ, God graciously pays the penalty himself, pays the penalty for us. No member of the human race except Christ, this theory says, ever gave to God anything which that person was not going at some time uh, to lose as a matter of necessity. Uh, other than Christ, we all have to die. Nor did anyone ever pay to God that which they did not already owe. We never give to God anything other than what is already God's due. But Christ, says this theory, of his own free accord, gave to his Father what he was never going to lose himself, his life as a matter of necessity, and therefore paid on behalf of sinners a debt which he did not owe. Uh, in fact, there's a, a, a little popular uh, a camp song that says he paid, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Anselm is often criticized for being uh, too legalistic, uh, turning the meaning of the cross into a cold legal transaction. And the fact is, uh, that he was obviously influenced by medieval law and culture. 
especially its understanding of honor and offense and of the the um, uh, notion in Germanic law of the blood price. However, the biggest objection to some of the uh, substitution theories uh, like Anselm's is that they tend to see Jesus's death too much as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, which is, uh, which is actually a pagan concept older than Judaism or Christianity or uh, older even than the patriarchs and, mer- and, and matriarchs and have little to do with the meaning of the cross, with the deeper meaning of the cross. For uh, the fourth model, uh, which is often described but uh, rarely advocated, sees the purpose of the crucifixion as providing an example of the morally uh, perfect, the spiritually uh, transformed life. Seen in this way, Jesus' death removes our fear of God. Uh, It causes us uh, to feel repentant, sorry for all our wrongdoing. Uh, Ultimately, it leads us to metonia, enlightened repentance, and shows us uh, both the very practical and spiritual dimensions of living a life of sacrificial love. The fifth model uh, I'm thinking about is uh, Christus Victor, uh, Christ the Victor or Christ Triumphant. This is a way of looking at the atoning work of Christ in a way that emphasizes the triumph of Christ over the evil powers of the world, over the uh, dark forces of life and the the beautiful way in which he rescues his people from from. Uh, evil and from darkness and establishes a new relationship between the world and God. And finally, uh, number six, in the recapitulation view of the atonement, Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did and because of his union with humanity, leads humankind to spiritual and moral perfection and therefore to eternal life. The great Bible commentator and New Testament scholar William Barclay explained it like this. He wrote this, Through man's disobedience, the process of the evolution of the human race went wrong, and the course of its wrongness could neither be halted nor reversed by any human means. But in Jesus Christ, the whole course of human evolution was perfectly carried out and realized in obedience to the loving purpose of God. Now, I don't have to choose any one of these models in favor of the other. If, as N.T. Wright, uh, the well-known scholar, puts it, I get the story right, all these models will fit together. I, I don't know that we can ever really understand what it means that Christ died for our sins, the doctrine of the atonement.
The hard fact is that all these theories are just that. They are theories. And no theory of reality, no matter how correct or how much truth there is to it, is the reality itself. No matter how much we know or think we know of the passion of Christ, it is always exceeded by what we do not know. While the truth may be simple, in that it is uncomplicated, it can never be captured in simplistic slogans, cliches, or religious jingos, or concepts and theories. I disagree with the with a bumper sticker theology of the fundamentalists. I find it overly simplistic. But I do think it is possible to see the death of Jesus as sacrificial without thinking of it as something meant to placate an angry God. Augustine saw the death and the resurrection of Christ as the triumph over cosmic catastrophe. I think that's a good way to put it. It is the triumph of Christ over cosmic catastrophe. And the brilliant modern scholar Ernst Kasimann maintained that for St. Paul, salvation is primarily freedom from the power of sin and death. That is to say, it is the possibility, Kazimimon said, it is a possibility of new life. And so E. Stanley Jones, who held firmly to historic Christianity, uh, saw the suffering, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ in terms of karma. It is not surprising this would occur to Jones since he spent much of his life, most of his life, uh, most of his adult life in India. Uh, he was friends with Gandhi and Nehru and worked on behalf of the uh, National Congress. There is, he thought, a negative aspect to karma in that it is law rather than grace oriented. You, you get what you sow and there's no way around that, no way out of that. You're doomed. But it is true in the sense that we cannot evade the consequence of our moral actions. Furthermore, we not only reap what we sow ourselves, Jones said, but other people may also reap what we sow. We're all bound up in a bundle of life, and everything that affects one affects all. So suppose, he queried, suppose there was one organically connected with the human race as son of man, and connected with God as son of God. Suppose he should sow himself in sacrifice. Could he pass on to the whole human race the result of his karma? If such an individual was only human, Jones reasoned, then his death would be a martyrdom affecting the world only faintly. But if he were God in the flesh, then he would be the creator connected with all people in love. In such a case, Jones concluded, we could reap what Jesus sowed. 
But again, no theory is Christianity itself. What is essential to a Christian understanding is that the death of Christ somehow puts us to right, puts us uh, right with God, changes our lives, and overcomes whatever it is that separates and distances us from God and from each other. Christians are not, wrote C.S. Lewis, all of one mind when it goes to exactly how the atonement works. That it does work, they have declared with one voice throughout the ages. I recently read or heard someone, I, I can't remember which or who or where, uh, say something like this. The atonement is crucial for the sort of change of heart that makes us comfortable in God's presence. Through the atonement, the Spirit changes my desires and my character so that I not only want to do better, but so that I want to be better. This, I think, is a much more personal and practical way of describing both the atonement and the judgment. Truth is, I don't have to know how God works for good on my uh, in my own heart or be able to engage in heavy theological explanations of the atonement or any doctrine in order for the Spirit to transform me from the inside out. I just need to be as open and as cooperative and as trusting as I possibly can. Now, I said at the beginning of this whole reflection on meditation or meditation on, on what the cross accomplished, that the crucifixion, resurrection, atonement, and the ascension are all parts of a single larger story. So I want to look at the story now from the perspective of the ascension. There are only two accounts of the ascension. Uh, if you uh, take away the longer ending of, of Mark, which most translations do now. And both of them are provided by Luke. One is in Luke 24, 50 through 53, and the other is in Acts 1, 10 through 11. So uh, let me read Acts quickly. Okay? Keep that in mind. Acts 1, 3. For 40 days after Jesus had suffered and died, he proved in many ways that he had been raised from death. He appeared to his apostles and spoke to them about God's kingdom. Verse 9, And while they were watching, he was taken up into a cloud. They could not see him. Verse 10, But as he went up, they kept looking up into the sky. Suddenly, two men dressed in white clothes were standing there beside them. Verse 11, They said, why are you men from Galilee standing here and looking up into the sky? Jesus has been taken into heaven, but he will come back in the same way you have seen him go. So what do I make of this story? I think its meaning is pretty obvious. The symbols in the narrative are not all that difficult to interpret. Uh, as an event, I guess, it may be a little difficult to decipher. But the first thing I notice is that Luke obviously uses the connection of the resurrection of Christ with the ascension at the end of his gospel and then at the beginning of Acts 
to form a, a, a literary bond between the two books, making them one work, um, making them uh, uh, integrally uh, connected. I also notice the account of the Ascension is unique with Luke, uh, as I noted, occurring only in his gospel and in the book of Acts, uh, comprising a total of, of what, maybe six verses? Other texts do, of course, make this comment, but make this uh, connection between uh, the, the risen Jesus and the ascended Christ, uh, but only Luke puts it in narrative form. Uh, others uh, make this connection, talk about uh, Christ ruling at the right hand of God. Uh, but again, Luke tells uh, is the only one that tells about the ascension in a narrative uh, form. Was it a physical event? Was it spiritually spiritually real but visionary in character? If you had been there, what would you actually have been able to physically see with your eyes, handle with your hands, hear with your ears, taste in your mouth, or smell in your nostrils? If it was some sort of vision you were able to be a part of, what would you have? Uh, what would that have felt like? Uh, I, I, I don't really know, and and neither does anyone else. I remember when I was a kid seeing drawings, book illustrations, and paintings of the Ascension, which showed Jesus 6,000 feet in the air, standing on a small white cloud, his disciples looking up with enraptured faces. That feels pretty incredulous to me. It, it did even when I was a kid. I think we have to be careful with Luke's account of the Ascension in the same way we need to be careful with what are known as the nature miracles like Jesus walking on water. Frequently, our biggest problem is with our own literalist imaginations. That is, when we let our imaginations run wild and uh, create a detailed picture from a few sketchy lines, uh, what we see in our mind, uh, in the case, may be pretty unbelievable. We wind up wrestling with that mental picture in our own imagination as if it were fact, when it isn't. If we could see it, which we can't, what actually happened uh, might uh, appear very natural. So, for example, C.S. Lewis wrote of the Ascension, Who on earth knows what the spectators might have seen? If they say they saw a momentary movement along the vertical plane, then an indistinct mass, then nothing. Who is to pronounce this improbable? The language indicates simply, wrote Lewis, that those present thought they saw a movement away from and up from where they were standing. Uh, we might ask, I think, uh, how far away, uh, how far up? Five, ten, a hundred, a thousand feet? Or something so slight it was just an impression, maybe only a feeling that there was a movement away from and, and up. I, I think that's what Lewis is getting at. I don't know about you, but it changes how I imagine the scene. And it changes how I imagine it, whether I think of it as physical or as a visionary event. 
One problem we have with the ascension comes from a wrong conception we have of heaven. It makes a difference whether we think of heaven as a place up there somewhere or as an incomprehensible spiritual dimension. I think it is N.T. Wright, the well-known British scholar, who, who said this. Once you come to think of heaven, not as a place miles up in the sky, but as God's dimension of reality, which intersects with ours, but in a strange way that is to us unpredictable and uncontrollable, certainly then you realize that for Jesus to go into the heavenly dimension is not for him to go up as a spaceman, miles into space somewhere, and not for him to be distant or absent now. It is for him to be present, but in the mode by which heaven is present to us. Wright assures us that one thing we can rule out is the notion that the biblical cosmos is tiered. The early Christians, he writes, and their fellow first-century Jews were not, as many moderns suppose, locked into thinking of a three-decker universe with heaven up in the sky and hell down beneath their feet. When they spoke of up and down like that, they, like the Greeks in their different ways, were using metaphors that were so obvious they didn't need spelling out. When I took to my uh, took my first college religious class, class in religion, uh, the professor delighted in making us aware of any claims that might diminish our confidence in Scripture. That's where I first learned that the ancient biblical writers supposedly believed that if we live in a three-decker universe, heaven above, earth in the middle, and hell below, each, of course, with supporting pillars. Uh, 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 what an impossibility that was. And what took me a, a little while to recognize was that the, the idea of a three-storied universe uh, mattered only if you're a literalist and think that if the biblical authors entertained a scientifically incorrect cosmology, everything else in Scripture, everything else they wrote, was false. But as Alan Richardson notes in Religion and Contemporary Debate, it is impossible to construct a biblical cosmology. For many stages of cosmological development, are represented in various parts of the Bible. Job 26.7 says the earth hangs upon nothing. And since what the biblical writers were talking about was neither science in general nor cosmology in particular, the truth of what they say, said Richardson, is not bound up with the truth of any particular scientific world view. The biblical authors were writing of something, or rather someone, that transcends time and space, and therefore drew on the poetic metaphors they had at hand. So when Luke wrote of the ascension of Christ, he wasn't thinking about the arrangements of the physical universe, but drawing on a metaphor of the ori oriental court, where the grand vizier might be elevated to sit at the right hand of the king, the emperor. 
This can be seen in the obvious symbolism of the text. The cloud itself is Luke's telling of the ascension, uh, telling is Luke's telling of the ascension as a sign of God's presence, as it is with the pillars of cloud and fire that the Israelites followed in the desert, Exodus fourteen nineteen through twenty four, or the cloud and smoke that fills the temple in Second Chronicles five fourteen, and like the clouds of Daniel seven thirteen, where Daniel writes. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. They all point to the reality of divine power and presence. In the next episode, I will reflect on uh, what the cross accomplished and the second coming.